Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of The P-Value. This season, we'll be focusing on topics in the philosophy of biology, beginning with the question, what is human nature? In the 3rd century BCE, Chinese Confucian philosopher Shun Tzu argued that our inborn human nature is evil and selfish. It is, he claimed, culture, reflection and conscious activity which makes us good. Without these things, we're slaves to our own selfish desires. In short, In his view, our human nature is something to be overcome or shaped. Not all Confucian philosophers of the period held such a view. Mengzi or Mencius disagreed. According to him, human nature is fundamentally good, which like a sprouting plant only requires the right environment to flourish. Our nature, in Mengzi's view, is something we must nurture rather than a burden to be overcome. During the same period, ancient Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle were offering remarkably similar views on human nature. Like Shunzi and Mengzi, they also emphasised the essentiality of human nature. They postulated an intrinsic or immutable property or properties displayed by every human that were considered definitive of membership of humanity as a natural kind. Although all these thinkers were writing over 2,000 years ago, we see a remarkable similarity between their views and the views about human nature expressed by some thinkers today. Evolutionary psychologists such as Steven Pinker, for example, attribute a central explanatory role to human nature in understanding both our history and our future. According to Pinker, our success as a species owes much to the role played by culture in mediating the impact of our innate inner dispositions. Pinker emphasises that there are both virtuous and less virtuous aspects of our psychology. Our inner demons, such as our disposition to ideology, revenge and aggression, and our inner angels, such as reasoning, morality and empathy. Despite the obvious differences from earlier thinkers, Pinker's means of responding to our human nature is remarkably similar. Our inner angels, he argues, must be nurtured, while our inner demons must be endured and overcome. Pinker isn't alone. It's not unusual to hear aspects of human behaviour from aggression and war to nurturing and motherhood described as a matter of human nature. But what is human nature? While it has intuitive appeal, is it something that has scientific rigour? How much store should we put in claims about human history and behaviour which rely heavily on human nature? That is the topic of this episode of The P-Value, as we explore the question... Is there such a thing as human nature? Many philosophers of biology have responded to the question, is there such a thing as human nature, in the negative. Human nature, they say, is nothing but a superstition. Claims that rest on it are on shaky, conceptual ground, because it is an outdated folk notion without a robust grounding in biological reality. Whilst we might take umbrage with the particulars of of a view like Stephen Pinker's, it also seems like the idea there's nothing to human nature is a problem. It raises a challenge for all sorts of everyday practice. 
For example, normative discussions around moral value, personhood and blameworthiness. So who's right? Is human nature bunk? Or is there something salvageable to the concept? In order to assess the scientific merit of the idea of human nature, it's important to be clear what we mean by the term in the first place. What are we claiming when we talk about human nature? In the Western philosophical tradition, the idea that there's some sort of special feature of humanity, some essence which makes us who we are, has been very influential. What that essence is varies depending on the scholar. Kant picked up rationality. Christian thinkers have pointed to a God-given soul. For Luther, human nature rests on the capacity for private property. Setting aside those views reliant on some sort of supernatural basis for human nature, most naturalistic approaches share a common commitment to essentialism. Essentialism is a claim about what it is that makes something what it is. It's metaphysics. Essentialism is a claim about what it is that makes something what it is. For example, we might ask, what is it that makes a piece of clay a piece of clay rather than a rock? Or a penguin a penguin rather than some other bird? Or a human a human rather than some other species? Knowing the answer to these questions helps us to carve up the world into categories and is seen by many to be integral to all sorts of our endeavours such as explanation and prediction. For essentialists, the thing that makes something what it is, or at least for natural kinds like species, is a matter of having the right essence, an intrinsic feature or features. This essence is typically thought to play two roles, one classificatory and the other explanatory. It is the features which are definitive of membership of a kind of thing in question and also cause the observable qualities characteristic of the kind. To illustrate, In the case of a piece of gold, for example, we might say that the essence of goldness involves a certain type of arrangement of atoms. That arrangement is both definitive or classificatory of the kind, so all and only those things which are gold have it, and it explains its special properties, the luster, the hardness, the colour of any piece of gold. In the history of Western thought, when people have talked about human nature, they have often had something like this sort of essence in mind an innate property or properties, whether it be language, reason or consciousness, that are claimed to be uniquely necessary and sufficient for being human. And moreover, they're thought to explain the special properties of members of the human kind, whether that be ecological domination, moral value or of intelligence. In the 1980s, philosophers of biology such as David Hull and Michael Gisellen drew on the empirical literature on biological species and debates about what species were to argue that human nature is but a superstition. Specifically, they argued that at very least we can't read off some empirically or scientifically respectable notion of human nature from how biologists divide up the living world into species. Essentialism about human nature is, they say, in conflict with evolutionary biology because it's not possible for evolution to produce a situation in which a species, such as humanity, displays a universal, immutable, innate property which is also unique and thus able to define species membership. Let's call this the taxonomic objection against human nature. The 
taxonomic objection against human nature derives from a more general critique of essentialism about biological species, which shows that essentialism conflicts with the key aspects of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Assuming human nature is a matter of cashing out what it is to be a member of the human species, critiques say then it can't be essentialist. The first reason they offer against essentialist approaches to human nature is that essentialism about species is in conflict with the ubiquity of variation within naturally evolving systems. As Darwin famously pointed out, evolution by natural selection occurs when we have three conditions met. Offspring have to resemble their parents, there has to be variation in the traits that members of populations have, and the variation must result in differential survival and reproduction. Ultimately, when we have those three conditions met, we see change in the traits within populations over time. What modern biology tells us is that genetic mutation, recombination and drift are fundamental sources of such variation, and they're ubiquitous in the tree of life. To return to humans, what this means is that even in the unlikely case that there was a really strong selective pressure on our species, which resulted in some trait becoming completely universal, the ubiquitous forces of mutation, recombination and drift would inevitably result in variation arising. So, even in the unlikely case that all and every human did have some universal trait at some point in time, it would be a really fragile and unusual state of affairs, which would not persist. In this, universal traits or properties seem to be a poor basis for species membership. And they also seem a poor basis for something as socially significant as human nature is taken to be. A second way essentialism conflicts with evolutionary biology is in its expectation that variation between species will be discontinuous. It's fairly universally agreed that there's just one tree of life, and these shared origins mean that we share many genes and traits, even with quite distant species. Furthermore, common environments see evolution generate similar solutions to the same problems across even quite different taxa. Think, for example, about the streamlined shape of sharks and dolphins. This again pushes against the idea that we should see some unique property or properties that only humans have and no other species could have. Not only is it unlikely that we would see a trait that all members of a species hold universally, but it's also unlikely that were such a trait to arise that it would be entirely discontinuous with all the other traits seen in the tree of life. Empirically and theoretically, species have fuzzy boundaries, and so too, say Harlan Gisellen, will humanity. It's worth noting that the one tree of life argument here doesn't entirely rule out the possibility of a uniquely human trait. Indeed, the long history of scientists looking for a big difference between us and other apes, from language to fire to rationality, suggests that for many scientists, it's still a live possibility. It's important to be aware, however, that essentialism about human nature requires that to be a member of the human species, you must have the unique essential trait. Thus, when we look at many of the more plausibly unique human traits, such as language and rationality, the essentialist account has the unpalatable and counterintuitive result that many people, those unable to speak, the very young, the very old, fail to be members of humanity. This seems a very bad consequence indeed of the essentialist view, and one we should wish to avoid at all costs.
The realisation that essentialism is incompatible with evolutionary theory has seen philosophers and scientists discard the idea that what makes a particular organism a member of a particular species is its unique essence. Instead, we have to look elsewhere for species membership. One popular view is that species are simply genealogical lineages. Membership of a species is simply membership of a particular historical lineage rather than the presence of a particular set of properties, and thus species are essentially vague entities. This means that from a biological perspective, to be human is simply to be part of the lineage of Homo sapiens, rather than having any particular properties. Thus, so say advocates of the taxonomic objection, biological species don't offer us a respectable route to an essentialist account of human nature, and human nature is but superstition. The sense that we have a unique or special set of properties which make us human is on this view but an illusion partly born out of the fact that many of our closest relatives, Neanderthals, the Denisovians, the Australopithecines, are extinct. Were they around today, we would see that the boundaries between our lineage and others are as vague as the boundaries between many other species and their closest relatives. Now, not everyone agrees with the conclusion that Harlan and Gisellen draw from the taxonomic objection. In the 50 years since they published their critique of human nature, various philosophers have tried to revive or save human nature from the conceptual scrap heap. We shall turn to this next. In his 2008 article, A Plea for Human Nature, philosopher of cognitive science Edouard Machery argues that whilst Hull and Gazellen are right to advocate the abandonment of essentialist approaches to human nature on taxonomic grounds, there's an alternative approach to human nature available to us, which is compatible with modern evolutionary biology, and thus human nature is not an illusion. Mushery argues that rather than looking for necessary and jointly sufficient properties for humanity, it's better to understood human nature as being composed of the properties humans tend to possess as the result of the evolution of our species. Just like an ornithologist or herpetologist putting together a field guide of bird or snake species defines them via their typical observable properties, we can, says Mushri, do the same for humanity. Human nature on this nomological or field guide account is thus a matter of picking out the properties humans tend to possess, such as bipedalism, biparental investment and language, rather than looking for an essence of humanity. Significantly, this view turns on its head the usual relationship between human nature and explanations. On the essentialist approach, it's our essential human nature which underwrites various generalizations about humanity, such as all humans are selfish at heart or all humans are nurturing. In contrast, on the field guide view of human nature, human nature doesn't explain the generalizations. It's a mere summary of those generalizations which then can be used for various empirical purposes, such as prediction and explanation. This flipping on the head of the typical essentialist picture allows the field guide view to avoid the taxonomic critique, as it doesn't posit any immutable, unique or universal human properties, merely typical properties. So whilst language might be taken to be a part of human nature, It is, after all, the sort of thing an alien naturalist landing on our planet would surely put in the field guide of Earth species as one of the main human characteristics. 
membership of the species doesn't require language. Similarly, that other species might share characteristics with humans is fine, so long as there's some cluster of traits which can be used to reasonably, reliably delineate us from other species. Membership of the species comes down to historical lineage or some other species concept, but human nature is just a way of picking out humans in general. In this sense, Mushery's approach decouples human nature from our biological species concept, whilst also offering a naturalistic and, he says, valuable notion of human nature that can be used in science. It's a notion that can warrant generalisations about humans and what humans tend to be like, such as the generalisations used in thinking about typical human behaviours in psychology. Now, one worry you might have is that this view is overly profligate. There are many things, many if not all humans share. For example, a belief that water is wet, but they don't seem like the right kind of thing to be put in the human nature basket. Human nature seems to require properties which are not merely accidental or external in origin, and this belief seems more like that. Now, we might try to look to evolution to avoid this conclusion and say only properties that are causally the product of natural selection are relevant to human nature. But it seems that we can reasonably produce a causal chain for all sorts of things, for example, the belief the water is wet, or any belief, with evolution in it because our belief-making faculties themselves arose through evolution. Now, Mashery says, whilst this much is true, what we have to do is focus on those traits which are the direct product of evolutionary processes. The belief that water is wet might indirectly be due to selection for a belief-making cognitive apparatus, but the belief itself hasn't got an evolutionary history. It's not been subject to selection nor has it been persisted and inherited across generations in the right kind of way to count as part of our nature. Something like language, he says, in contrast, is the product of an evolutionary history, and in that sense, it forms an appropriate part of our nature. Whether or not Mushery's approach really saved human nature is debated. This is just the tip of a very big philosophical iceberg. If you want to learn more, I recommend checking out Elizabeth Hannon and Tim Lewins's edited volume, why We Disagree About Human Nature, or Grant Ramsey's newly released Cambridge element, Human Nature. That's it for the p-value this week. Next week, we'll be back thinking about genes and whether your genes make you who you are. Bye for now.